Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Welcome, everyone. So glad that you're all here. If this is your first time at Ridgeline, my name is Ryan. I'm lead pastor here, and it's an honor to have you with us. Uh, We are uh, in the midst of a teaching series right now called Dear Discouraged. We are making our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we're going to jump back into chapter two today. Um, But just before that, uh, you're going to notice that there is a phone number on every slide throughout the entirety of the message this morning, and that's because we're going to conclude the message today. Uh, with a time of text message Q&A. So if at any point uh, while I'm teaching, a question comes to mind or you're not certain how something uh, might apply in your particular situation or you want clarification about something, then just go ahead and text uh, those questions in and I'll answer as many as we have time for together at the end. But to start, uh, I wanna talk about um, a not so popular topic. It's not masks, don't worry. Uh, Still too fresh, huh? We still can't laugh about this. Good Lord. Now, I want to talk about self-sacrifice. Few things are more moving than a story of self-sacrifice. Think about how we are left in awe when we hear a story of a person or a group of people foregoing their own safety or foregoing their own preference for the good of others. For instance, um, how many of you are familiar with the name Richard Rescorla? Anyone ever heard that name? Well, Mr. Rescorla was the director of security for Morgan Stanley in the World Trade Center on 9-11. And when the building next to theirs was attacked, Rescorla was instrumental in getting over 2,500 people out of his own building. And after safely evacuating almost every single Morgan Stanley employee, Rescorla ran back into the building, yet again, refusing to leave anyone inside. He was last seen on the 10th floor just before the South Tower collapsed at 9.59 a.m., and his remains were never found. And the point in that story is that over 2,500 people had the privilege of going home to their families that night because Richard Rescorla sacrificed his own life on their behalf. And stories like this have a way of leaving us in awe. We, we admire, we honor, and we respect self-sacrifice. And the truth is, this is one of the many things that, that people find so compelling about Jesus. As we were reminded last week, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. He sacrificed his life in order to save ours. And so as a result of that, foundational to the Christian faith is the daily decision to forsake our own preference in favor of what honors God and benefits other people. Yet sadly, despite our love for stories of people's self-sacrifice, everything in our own nature is bent towards self-service and self-preservation and self-gratification. And the problem with that is you can't follow Jesus apart from sacrifice of self. Furthermore, one of the most counterintuitive things 
that Paul teaches in Philippians is that true and lasting joy is found in sacrificing, not saving ourselves. Because remember, for the sake of context, Paul's situation from which he writes. He writes from prison where he is suffering because he was willing to sacrifice what was easy and comfortable in order to help more people know Jesus. And yet in the midst of this, one of his most dominant themes is joy. So Paul is uncomfortable. He is being treated unjustly. He is sitting and writing with the possibility of his own execution hanging over his head, all because he was determined to preach the way of Jesus. And yet over and over and over again, he says, I rejoice. And so I don't know about you, but I just think that is staggering when we compare that to the messages that we are bombarded with every single day, all day. We live in a culture that preaches the consistent sermon that your joy is bound up in putting yourself first. Always do what feels good to you. Always do what you desire. We're told over and over and over again that joy is found in self-service and that the only true sin is to sacrifice what promises to make your life more comfortable, your life more enjoyable, and your life more pleasurable. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that is a lie. And so here's the counterintuitive truth that is sitting in these verses this morning. It's our big idea. If you're taking notes and you like to write these down, then make a note of this. Joy fills a heart that follows Jesus in sacrificial obedience. Joy fills a heart that follows Jesus in sacrificial obedience. And so to that end, if you have your Bibles this morning, open up to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick back up in verse 12. If you don't have a Bible this morning, all the scripture will be on the screen. But I want to call this message, The Life of Self-Sacrificing Obedience. And just to set this up again, I want you to remember that the first 11 verses of chapter 2 that we looked at last week have been Paul calling the Philippians to the pursuit of unity, remember, through the practice of humility. And so he rightfully holds up Jesus as the ultimate example of this humility and his resulting obedience. And so then... As we come to verse 12, he's going to shift his attention away from Christ's work and back to their responsibility. And so Paul holds up for us what I would call the way of self-sacrificing obedience. And I want you to notice in these verses that it demands three decisions, three choices from us. And the first is this. Number one, I will obey by responding to God's work in me. I will obey by responding to God's work in me. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work <clears throat> according to his good pleasure. So I want you to pay attention right there at the beginning of verse 12 how Paul transitions from Jesus to them with this word, therefore. Now, I love the way that Paul takes us from what I would describe as like maybe the top of the mountain, and then he walks us back into the weeds. And here's what I mean by that. You have these amazing verses about the person and work of Jesus in verses 5 through 11. 
The humility of Jesus emptying himself, taking on human flesh, sacrificing his life for ours. And the reminder that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. And the promise that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the mountaintop message that lifts us out of the difficulty and discouragement of this life and reminds us of what's to come. But the reality is we don't live on that mountain right now. We live in the weeds. And so it's, it's similar to like um, a good vacation. Uh, I love a great vacation. I especially love a beach vacation. I know everybody likes different kinds, but there's, it's hard to beat a beach vacation. There's no rushing around in the mornings. You just get to relax and drink coffee slowly rather than like for survival. Like day-to-day coffee consumption is different than vacation. Coffee consumption, one is for fun, the other is to not die. And so at the beach, man, you just get to chill and sip your coffee. You play all morning. You read and take naps in the afternoon unless you have little kids that are bent on your destruction. Then you eat ice cream with them and you stay up late and it's just great. And they are totally different than the day-to-day weeds of life. And this is why the mood on the way home from a good vacation tends to be kind of somber because you realize it was so great, but now we're headed back to real life. And all the stresses and the problems and the worries that we pushed aside on that vacation, they're all there waiting for us. And so what's so helpful about what Paul writes here is that he doesn't just take us to the top of the mountain that is going to be, that is one day coming, but he also leads us back into the weeds. The news of Christ's forever reign over eternity is the best news ever. But how does that help us in the weeds of life? And that's what makes verse 12 so helpful. Paul says, therefore. So he's saying, here's what that good news of everything I just told you about Jesus means for you right now in the weeds of life that you are wading through. And so he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, in these verses, I, w- I want to spend a disproportionate amount of time right here for two reasons. The first is, this is the overarching command of these verses. Everything else that Paul says is working out this verse, these two verses. And then secondly, it's also so critical that we do not confuse what Paul says here. And so the most important question that we can ask these verses is, what does Paul mean when he says, work out your own salvation? Now pay close attention to the words. I want you to notice he does not say to work for your salvation. He doesn't even say work at your salvation. He says work out your salvation. Now that phrase that we translate as work out, it means to carry something out or to put it into effect. And so what Paul's saying is, in light of everything that Jesus has done, and in light of everything that Jesus will do, work out the effects of that saving grace into every part of your life. So we need to understand, as followers of Jesus, that the salvation that we are gifted by the grace of God through Christ is about way more than just a ticket to heaven. For too long, too many Christians have thought, Well, I've followed Jesus as my golden ticket to heaven. But salvation does not just secure our eternity, it transforms our current reality. 
It transforms us from despondent and destructive enemies of God into the humble, helpful, and flourishing true selves that God created us to be. And so in short, God's work makes us like Jesus. And the thing is, we participate in that transformation as we seek to follow him. But I want you to notice that Paul doesn't just command the action that we are to take, but also the attitude. Because notice he says, work out your own salvation. That's action that's being commanded. But then he says, with fear and trembling. That is our attitude in the midst of working that grace into all aspects of our lives. Now, the words fear and trembling don't mean terror or dread. The word that is translated as fear speaks to a feeling of profound respect for someone or something. And trembling speaks of sometimes if you've ever met someone or you've interacted with someone that you hold in very high regard, you like get a little anxious and nervous around them. And that's what Paul's describing this attitude as. So maybe you've had that experience. I remember years ago, I'll never forget going with my son Ryder and his preschool class on a field trip to the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago. And as soon as we arrived, the first place that we went was the big cat exhibit, which is one of my favorites with the exception of it seems like all lions do is sleep. Just like we were just at the zoo again this last Friday and guess what they were doing? Just sleeping, just once. I'm like, can't we just throw a zebra in there? Let's, let, let, let's just see what happens. Let them work it out. We'll just have an adventure. We'll see if they move at all. Regardless, this particular morning, I had a very, very different experience. I remember walking around the corner of this exhibit and there pacing directly in front of the glass, looking into my soul, through my eyes was this massive, majestic male lion. And he was like, he was doing that pacing thing, but he was not breaking eye contact, which is extremely unnerving when something, anything paces in front of you and does, that's only a sociopath does that. So I had this experience between me and this lion that was extremely sobering because you, you realize in that moment how much more big and how much more powerful they are than you. And that sobers and it humbles. And that's the type of fear and trembling that Paul describes here. And so let me ask you, do you have that sense of awe with God? Do you live with that? When you maybe even close your eyes and conceive of God's presence with you, his love, his grace, his mercy, his character, his nature. What do you feel? Do you feel a sense of reverence and awe? I think if we're honest, the answer is that many of us don't. But I don't think it's because we don't love him. I think it's because we don't spend enough time really looking at him. We're oftentimes so consumed by the wind and the waves that, are, that, that, that surround us and rage around us every day that we miss the very presence of Jesus with us in the midst of it. And so if we're going to work out the effects of our salvation in, in every area of our lives, we have to live with our eyes fixed on Jesus so that with time, reverence and awe will fill our hearts. And this means we have to do at least two things. Number one, we have to ask the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see him for who he truly is. That is a gift of grace. But then secondly, we need to live at a pace of life that is conducive to gazing at God. If we live such a frantic pace 
that we can never slow down and just sit with God, we will never truly know him. And Sunday is not enough. I think one of the most important observations that I've had walking through COVID is it revealed something very, very specific and sobering about so many of us who follow Jesus. And it's that we have given over the responsibility of our relationship with Jesus to a church service rather than actually know how to relate with God ourselves. And so when the service went away, our soul started to shrivel because so many of us didn't know how to actually relate with God. We've allowed church and pastors and sermons and songs to mediate that relationship for us. But God wants relationship with you, not just you through me. And so we have to learn to slow down, to sit with God so we can truly know him. Because if we never truly know him, we will never follow him with a sense of reverence and awe. And furthermore, I want you to notice that Paul doesn't place the responsibility for transformation on our shoulders alone. Instead, he says it is primarily a response to God's work. Look again at verse 13. He says, for, so work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So notice how Paul roots the current command in God's prior action. We are to work out our salvation. We are to obey because God works in us. And so our spiritual formation is primarily, this is so important, our spiritual formation is primarily one of response. It is God's prior work in us that not only motivates our obedience, but also makes it possible. And so Paul says that God is working in us in two specific ways, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So again, we see action and attitude. First, he gives us the will to obey, the desire. That is the attitude. That's the overarching desire that the people of God have to obey him, even though we don't do that perfectly. You didn't create that. God gave that to you as a gift. And then secondly, God works in us the ability to work according to his good pleasure, to actually obey him. Now, that does not mean that God does it for us, but that he supplies the necessary empowering that we need to pour out our hearts and lives for him. And there's an important lesson in this. Our spiritual formation is primarily a work of response. So think about it. This is going to sound weird to you, but think about it like ping pong. I swear, I have a point, okay? And it's going to make sense. I don't know if it'll make sense. I'm really hoping that it does, though. <clears throat> so think about this like ping pong. I'm happy to report that earlier this week, our family finally went under contract on a new home. So we're super pumped about that. Right here in Sandy, uh, whew, that was two people. And the rest of you are heartless and could care less, probably because you're all looking for a house, too. <laughs> so inside of 48 hours, we had to, I mean, we had no idea that this was going to happen this quickly. So within 48 hours, we had to get our house ready to list. And then we had 48 hours uh, where we had 22, uh, we had 22, what's it called? Showings, there you go. I can't think straight anymore. We haven't slept in like a week. So we had 22 showings, 50 to 75 people come through an open house as well. Uh, three offers in hand with more to, it's just insanity. So the good news is if you're trying to sell a house, it's great. Finding one is a nightmare. My point in this is we finally found a house that for the first time in our lives, we're gonna have a basement, which means we get to have a ping pong table. I'm a simple man, okay? It's all I really want in life. 
Tammy and I have loved playing ping pong together since early in our marriage. Uh, I like it. We like it for different reasons. I've learned that. I like it because it's something fun that we can do together in our marriage. Like it, it's an opportunity for us to build our friendship. I think she likes it because it's one more way for her to assert her superiority. So I feel like we have different goals in the whole, that's not true. I usually beat her so bad, so it's fine. <laughs> Listen, my point is, <laughs> uh, ping pong is by definition a game of partnership. Like think about how depressing it is to play ping pong alone, right? It's just like clack, clack, sadness. That's ping pong by yourself. <laughs> the only way that ping pong works is two partners responding to what the other serves their way. It's a game of response. And in a very similar way, that's exactly how our formation works. M. Robert Mahalan Jr. has maybe my favorite definition of spiritual formation in his book, Invitation to a Journey. He defines it like this. It's a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. So when we talk about spiritual formation, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the good of others. And I love this for its depth in the midst of its simplicity. Because first, Paul here is describing a process. This is not a one-time act. This is the rest of our lives. If you want to know what are you going to be doing with the rest of your life, you're going to be working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a process of working out the effects of our new life in Christ. Secondly, it's a process of being formed. We do not form ourselves. We are formed by God. We are formed as we respond to his work in around us. And I think that's important because oftentimes when we think about spiritual formation, our minds immediately rush to spiritual practices like prayer and Bible reading and worship and service and on and on and on. But you know, those practices are not the source of our formation. All spiritual practice of any kind is meant to do is to put us in a position where we can discern where God is at work in us and then respond accordingly. And then thirdly, I want you to notice that community is always the context of our formation. Paul, remember, is writing to an entire church that clearly needs to keep fighting for unity in their relationships. And that is very helpful to know because sometimes we view spiritual growth as a solitary act, again, through practices like prayer. But the truth is, all of life, particularly our relationships, are the context in which Christ forms us. You get that? So like, do you know why your kids drive you crazy? For your formation. Do you know why your work relationships are so challenging? It's for your formation. Do you know what God's intent is for the conflict that you experience in your friendships or your marriage? It's your formation. Paul is calling us to the process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. And so the question is, where right now in your life do you need to respond to God's work in you? If we are going to live out the way of self-sacrificing obedience and have joy fill our hearts because they are poured out for Christ, we have to obey by responding to God's work in us. 
Two more decisions real quick. The second one is this. I will obey by choosing joyful contentment in all things. I will obey by choosing joyful contentment in all things. Look at verse 14. Do everything, and it means everything, do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. Sounds like a Katy Perry song. By holding, by holding firm to the word of life, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. All right, so Paul gives a very specific application of the obedience that he calls the Philippians to, and that application is still every bit as relevant for us today. He says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Now, grumbling and arguing are obviously connected to one another. To grumble is to complain about something, and arguing is exactly what it sounds like. It means to argue. Now, remember the context of this letter. Paul is experiencing an intense season of suffering. He writes to the Philippians because they are beginning to experience a more intense season of suffering. And I wonder if you've noticed how suffering has a tendency to give us a shorter wick. By that I mean when we're stressed or we get fatigued or we get anxious, it just takes way less for us to snap at one another, right? And when you snap off a complaint at someone, most of the time that results in an argument. And arguments always divide. Now listen, that that does not mean that we can't disagree. Disagreement can still be driven by a desire to listen and to understand and to grow closer. But arguing is about winning. And when you want to win, you're probably not listening in order to understand. And so these types of arguments that Paul is talking about, they are inherently divisive. See, Paul is following the example of Jesus here, and he is emphasizing the priority of preserving relationship. And we cannot overlook the fact that there is meant to be something distinct about our relationships with one another that causes us, as Paul says, to shine like stars in a dark world. And so because Paul continues to hammer this, I want to continue to hammer this. It is not primarily our morality that makes us distinct. And it is certainly not primarily our politics that make us distinct. And it is not even our theology primarily that makes us distinct. It's the way we live life together. It's not to say those other things don't matter. They are, they do matter and they are essential. But that is not the primary distinguishing mark of the body of Christ. It is the way that we love one another, the way that we serve one another, the way that we sacrifice for one another, the way that we honor one another and encourage one another and pray for one another and even disagree with one another. And so that means that rather than grumble and argue when the stress of suffering sets in, we ask God for the strength to be joyfully content in all things. If we're going to live out the way of self-sacrificing obedience and have this, what feels like ever-elusive joy, fill our hearts because they are poured out for Christ, 
We have to choose joyful contentment in all things. Which brings us to the last decision, number three. I will obey by honoring those worthy of emulation. I will obey by honoring those worthy of emulation. Let me read through this next very personal paragraph for the Philippians. Paul says, Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you uh, soon, so that I may too may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. But I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need, since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again when you see him and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honor because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Now, understand in all of that, this is more than Paul conveying some personal thoughts to the Philippians about these two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, if you don't know, Timothy was a uh, traveling partner and ministry partner with Paul. Uh, They had, as he says, almost a father and son relationship. And he eventually left Timothy in Ephesus to pastor the church there. Epaphroditus was from Philippi, and he'd been sent by them to minister to Paul. But again, Paul's reason for mentioning them is more than merely informational. He is also holding them up as examples of the very self-sacrificing obedience that he's called the Philippians to. Because notice that Paul says Timothy genuinely cared for their interests, unlike those who were only concerned with their own. And Epaphroditus had risked his life in service to the Lord. And so Paul lifts them up as examples, and he says, hold people like him in honor. And then when we get to chapter 3, verse 17, Paul's going to say, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. See, following Jesus has always involved imitating the example of others who are faithful. Imitating the example of others who are faithful. Now, I, when I think about my own life, I see at least two ways I've missed the mark on this front Uh, in the past. And the first is, sometimes I have not properly honored the spiritual leaders in my life. Especially when I was younger, I often took them for granted. I oftentimes did not listen or emulate. Instead of encouraging and praying for them, I criticized them. And none of that is what Paul calls us to here. But then secondly, you know, I've also made the mistake of admiring, listen to this, of admiring giftedness over character. And I got to tell you, that is a massive mistake. And so for most of my life, I've been very drawn to charisma and to creativity and the ability to grow big things and produce big results. And none of those things is inherently evil, but in the absence of humble, self-sacrificing character that scripture calls for, they are terribly dangerous. 
And so as we close this morning, I want to ask you two questions in response to these final verses. The first question is, what do you look for in those you seek to emulate? Think about that. I mean, we all have people we admire and look up to. We all have people that we do seek to emulate things that we see in their lives. So what do you look for in those you seek to emulate? It is so critical that we do not allow our cultural definitions of success and prominence inform who and what we admire and emulate. The most important trait we should look for is a pattern, not just a one-time act, but a pattern of humble, self-sacrificing service. When you find that, emulate it. And the second question is, do you honor those who are worthy of emulation? Now, emulation does not mean worship, and it does not mean blindly obeying. It doesn't mean following at all cost. It just means that when you find a, a spiritual leader of any sort that displays a pattern of Jesus-y, humble, self-sacrificing service, you should encourage them, you should pray for them, you should love them, you should help them, and most importantly, emulate every part of their life that aligns with the life of Jesus. Joy fills a heart that follows Jesus in sacrificial obedience. And so let's obey by choosing to respond to God's work in us. Let's choose joyful contentment in all things. And let's choose to honor those worthy of emulation. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you again that you are always doing the work of forming us into the image of your son, Jesus. And we acknowledge, Lord, that we don't always feel like you're doing that. We don't always see it. But that does not mean that you're not at work. And so, Holy Spirit, I do ask and pray that you would give us eyes to see where you are at work in us so that we can respond to it. And so even now, Lord, as we sit in these final moments together, I pray that your spirit would reveal that to us. Where is one area that you are at work and that you are inviting us right now to respond accordingly to what you are already doing? And I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to choose joyful contentment in all things. I pray that you would help us to love one another, to be careful with our speech, I pray, God, that you would help us to have lives that are filled with faithful followers of Jesus whose lives we can emulate, regardless of their age. Lord, I pray that you would give that to us and that you would give us the humility to be able to do just that. We love you and we ask that you would continue to form us in your image. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.